0: Welcome to tape number 8 on Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450 3730, by fax at 780 468 1096, or by mail at 4710 37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing, and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing our reading of the Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. John beheld another beast, therefore not the same as many expositors strangely suppose. No one can have an intelligent understanding of this chapter unless he views the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth as perfectly distinct. As the former arose out of a revolutionary state of society, and was consequently more clearly marked in history, so the latter grew up out of the earth, more quietly and gradually, like a spear of grass. We know not how, as this second beast of the Apocalypse is to act a prominent part in the scenery afterwards, presented in vision to the Apostle, and a correspondent part in actual history, and it is as it is called by different names and appears under different aspects, it is necessary that its character be closely inspected, so that its identity may be clearly ascertained. The description here given is very minute. One thing is very obvious, that this beast of the earth is the confederate, the ally and the accomplice of the beast of the sea. They act in concert. They had been thus represented in vision, vision to Daniel. In the seventh chapter of that prophecy, we had the beast of the sea, as here with his ten horns. Verse 7. While the prophet narrowly considered the horns, behold, there came up among them another little horn. Verse 8. It has been already shown that these horns represent the kingdoms into which the Roman Empire was divided. Verse 24. Among these horns and kings, verse 24, or kingdoms, another shall rise after them. Among them, yet in the order of time, after them. Thus it appears that Daniel's fourth beast had eleven horns, but the eleventh is called another which came up, to distinguish it from the ten, verse 20. He shall be diverse from the first, verse 24. It is thus evident that the last horn, the eleventh, is as really a horn of the beast as the other ten, and, of course, this horn, little at its rise, but in time becoming more stout than his fellows, is the willing accomplice in crime of that beast whose horn it is, The same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Verse 21. He had two horns like a lamb. He professed to be gentle and innocent as a lamb, to be the vice-regent of the Lamb of God. He claimed only a spiritual jurisdiction. As it is natural that a lamb should have only two horns, so the symbol is agreeable to nature. But this lamb spake as a dragon and that was contrary to nature. No two animals in creation are in their respective natures more diverse or opposite than a lamb and a beast of prey. These two antagonistic natures combined indicate the crafty and cruel policy of this beast of the earth. Daniel mentions the little horn of the civil beast, but says nothing of the two horned beasts. On the other hand, John speaks plainly of this beast of the earth, but omits any mention of the little horn. But the beast of the earth and the little horn sustain the same relation to the first beast, the beast of the sea, the Roman Empire. Therefore, the two-horned beast of the earth and the little horn are identical. And this identity is confirmed by the additional name false prophet given to the beast of the earth in chapter 19, verse 20. His alliance and cooperation with the civil beast is precisely the same as in this chapter. He wrought miracles before him, that is, in his interest. Some interpreters have mistaken this false prophet as a symbol of Mahometism. The facts of history demonstrate the fallacy of this interpretation, for the delusions of Muhammad never had, and they have not now, any affinity with the idolatries of the Latin Roman Empire but these two beasts of the sea and of the earth are obviously in the closest sympathy having a common interest. Verse 12 And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The second beast exercises all the power of the first beast before him in his presence under his sanction and powerful protection Thus the state or empire lays the church under obligation and, of course, expects a reciprocity of kind offices. This is effected by the beast of the earth, causing the earth to worship the first beast. By force and craft this is accomplished. By his two horns of power, the regular and secular orders of the hierarchy as from the mouth of a dragon he enjoins submission to the civil powers that be. But besides the horns of power, that is, ecclesiastical authority, this beast of the earth, in order more effectually to enforce his commands to worship the first or civil beast, resorts to great wonders, miracles, verses 13 and 14, lying wonders, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, for Paul and John agree in their description of the same diabolical agency. As Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, magicians, doing so with their enchantments, beguiling unstable souls, so this second beast maketh fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of credulous men. 2 Timothy 3, verse 8, Exodus 7, verse 22, and Acts 8, verses 9 to 11. The venal ministry of the heathenized church, chapter 11, verse 2, inculcate passive obedience to the beast of the sea as to the ordinance of God, to resist which subjects the recusant to damnation. Romans 13, verse 2, Here then we behold the counterfeits of the two great ordinances of the church and state, against which it is the special duty and arduous work of the two witnesses to contend for 1,260 years, this false prophet, who spake as a dragon and made fire to come down from heaven to authenticate his divine mission, may represent the bulls, anathemas, interdicts, and cyclical letters which emanate from Rome together with the less terrifying mandates of her coadjutor's daughters. Verses thirteen to seventeen And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men And he caused all, both great and rich, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man may buy or sell save he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. This lamb-like beast of the earth devises another agency by which to subserve his own diabolical interest as well as that of the first beast. He causes to be made an image to or of the beast of the sea. Of images in general, as objects of idolatrous worship, we are warranted to say they are dead and dumb idols. Chapter nine twenty and Jeremiah ten fourteen. But this one is altogether different, and it is surprising to find learned expositors fixing upon the superstitious use of the cross by the papists as exemplifying this symbol. The Holy Spirit, as if to guard all readers against such misapprehensions, declares explicitly that this image has life, speaks, and acts. The only point in which this image resembles others is that it is to be worshipped. But of all others, we are assured that they cannot do evil. Jeremiah 10, verse 5. This image has such life or breath and power as to cause the death of such as refuse to worship itself. Three agents are to be noticed and clearly distinguished here. The ten-horned beast of the sea, the two-horned beast of the earth, and the image of the beast. At the instance of the second beast an image is made, not to or of himself, but to and also of the first beast. Now as the beasts put forth their power by their horns, so this ecclesiastical beast of the earth makes the image by his horns. In short, history explains the symbols. The Roman clergy, the horns, the cardinals, create the Pope, and in their own ceremonial and language, whom they create, they adore, like all other idolaters. Thus the Pope becomes the man of sin, sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, Second 2 Thessalonians 2.4. The Pope is the most perfect image of the Roman emperor, claiming the same universal dominion the same titles and prerogatives in the same city, but the Pope and the Emperor never identify. They are always distinct. Two authoritative measures are to be specially noticed in this connection, one by the beast of the earth, the other by the image of the beast of the sea. The image demands worship under pain of death. All heretics are judged worthy of death all are required by the second beast to receive the mark of the first or civil beast. The penalty in this case is privation of civil and political privileges to buy or sell. It is to be noticed here that the mark is imposed by the authority of the ecclesiastical power, the two-horned beast, as there is liability to mistake as to which of the two beasts the mark refers, and as this mistake is in fact generally made by expositors, The Apostle John has been directed, as in the case of the image, to be peculiarly explicit, that all may know it to be the mark of the first beast. See chapters 15, verse 2, 19, verse 20, and 20, verse 4. But it will be asked, what are we to understand by the mark? This question is easily answered from history. The heathen idolater glorified in his devotion to his imaginary God, As the ivy leaf was the token of the worshippers of Bacchus, soldiers bore the initials of the names of their commanders and slaves of their masters. These characters were impressed on the foreheads or other parts of the persons of individuals. The general idea suggested by the mark was subjection or property. In short, the mark of the beast signifies open and avowed allegiance to anti-Christian or immoral civil power, when in the forehead and act of cooperation with the same, same, when in the hand, it is at once a pitiful and culpable error to suppose, as many preposterously do, that this mark of the beast is popery. And as the mark is the recognized badge of loyalty to civil rule, of course the prohibition to buy or sell must signify civil disabilities, disenfranchisement, Men who suffer necessarily feel. Christ's witnesses, as they only have the scriptural conception of the rights of man, have long been familiar with the deprivation of their rights, both civil and ecclesiastical. The moral evils incorporated into the constitution of church and state throughout all the streets of mystic Babylon have effectually excluded the two witnesses and left them in the wilderness. Here is their destined place, and here they are to be nourished from the face of the serpent for twelve hundred and sixty years. Christ's promise, I will not leave you comfortless or orphans, is all along verified in their soul-satisfying experience. This will appear in the next chapter. Verse 18 Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. The name of the beast, since the time of Irenaeus, the disciple of Polycarp, who was contemporary with the Apostle John, is understood to be Latinus or Latinus, L A T E E I N O S, or L A T E I N U S. For it is well known to scholars that classical usage justifies the orthography of this word. However, learned men may indulge their fancy and sport with this mystic and sacred name and number. No other word fills up all the conditions required by the inspired writer. Latinus is the proper name of the first beast, the Latin Empire. It is the name common to the whole population of the empire, the Latins. It is the name of the founder of the empire, Latinus, and it contains the number 666. The probability that this word contains the requisite name and number amounts almost to a certainty. The unlearned reader may be easily taught to understand how to count the number of the beast. Of course, the apostle John accommodated his expressions to the custom of his own age. Well, even children soon learn to number or count by the use of Roman letters of the alphabet. They know that the letter I stands for one, V for five, etc. Now in the apostolic age, the Jews, Greeks, and Romans were accustomed to express numbers by the use of the letters of their respective alphabets. This we suppose to be the only rational and probable method of solving the mystery. In this chapter, we have the fullest exhibition of the great anti-Christian confederacy spoken of by prophets and apostles, including the man of sin, to be revealed in his time. The component parts of that complex moral person called Antichrist are here graphically portrayed. The three most prominent features are the two beasts of the sea and of the earth and the image of the first, or a tyrannical empire, an apostate church, and the pope. To suppose that the Antichrist is a power or moral person distinct from these, a willful, infidel, or atheistical king is a mere chimera framed in the learned brain disordered by Antichristian politics. The chief, if not the only ostensible ground of such hypothesis is the language of our Apostle, 1 John 2.22. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. The sound of the words of Scripture is too often mistaken for the sense. This is a notable example. From the words of our Divine Redeemer, My Father is greater than I, Sicinians infer the essential inferiority of the Son to the Father. So in the preceding instance, the inference is that the Antichrist is to be known by a doctrinal de- denial of deity. But the very name of this enemy of all righteousness, Antichrist, demonstrates his recognition of the existence and office of our Savior. For why should he oppose a non-entity? All scholars are aware that the primary meaning of anti-anti is substitution. Matthew 20, verse 28. Antichrist usurps Christ's place in church and state that he may more successfully oppose his interest. There is no mystery to the intelligent Christian in the declaration that men too often profess that they know God, but in works deny him. This explains the fact of Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. Usurping the prerogatives of the mediator is a practical denial of him, of his authority, and by consequence, of the Father who sent him. He that acknowledgeth the Son, in this sense, hath the Father also. While it is equally true, in the same sense, whoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. 1 John 2.23 Hence it is not true that the Pope is the Antichrist of prophecy, nor the Church of Rome, nor both combine, but Daniel's ten horned beast, John 7 headed ten horned beasts which are the same, Daniel's little horn and John's beast of the earth, which are the same, together with the image of the first beast, the Saracenic locust and Euphradian horseman, all these go to the composition of the Antichrist, the Eastern and Western Antichrist, so identified and familiarly designated by the martyrs and witnesses of Jesus for hundreds of years. The great family of nations called the nations of this world, chapter eleven, fifteen, in unholy alliance with a Gentile church, chapter 11 verse 2, these combined constitute the Antichrist. They will not have this man to reign over them. Against this combination, it is a, the appointed business, the life of the two witnesses, to prophesy for a definite period of 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times and a half, all indicating the same duration, 1,200 natural Excuse me, 1,260 natural years. All this time the witnesses are alive and active, but in an obscure and depressed condition, wearing sackcloth in the wilderness, not reckoning not reckoning themselves among the nations. Numbers 23, verse 9, Daniel 7, verses 22, 27, Revelation 20, verse 4. Such is the condition of the saints and such the powerful combination against them as symbolically represented in the 11th, 12th, and 13th, 13th chapters of the Apocalypse. And in this prolonged and eventful conflict we may with Moses turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. Exodus 3, verse 3. The Lord was in the bush, and greater is he that is in them that is than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. This will appear in the following chapter. Chapter 14 As the thirteenth chapter contains the most full and graphic description of the great apostasy, so in this chapter we have the other party described which protested against the, that apostasy. It is a concise history of the two witnesses in holy and happy fellowship with Christ when he had rejected the heathenized church because of her unholy league with the beast of the bottomless pit. Chapter 11, verses 2-7 to The contrast between the sealed ones here and those who bore the mark of the beast is very noticeable. This fact suggests that the parties are contemporary. Besides, it is evident that this company of 144,000 are the legitimate successors of those sealed in chapter 7, verses 4 4- through eight, Or rather, from the perpetual identity of the covenant society as a moral person, we may view this company as the same with the sealed ones of the seventh chapter, the two witnesses of the eleventh chapter, and as in the wilderness of the tw- twelfth chapter. Political bias caused a learned expositor to interpret the third angel of this chapter as a symbol of the Prelatic Church of England and a similar bias, or modern charity, induced another to distinguish between the two witnesses and the 144,000. To the unbiased and enlightened mind, it is obvious that instead of the 144,000 symbolizing the pious people in the different branches of the Christian church, all true Christians, they are in fact distinguished from the true Christians as 144,000 from a great multitude who had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 14. As the Antichrist, after his first development in the world, appeared in diverse forms of organization, thereby more effectually to deceive them that dwell on the earth, yet still preserved his moral identity, so the faithful servants of Christ are presented in corresponding attitudes and aspects to oppose and counteract his diabolical policy in tyranny yet always preserving their proper identity during the whole period of 1260 years. The process of sealing the servants of God in their foreheads, chapter 7, verses 4-8, through took place under the sixth seal before the opening of the seventh, chapter 8, verse 1, which introduced the trumpets, the harbingers of the visible organization of Antichrist, for this purpose, the four winds, all winds emblematical of popular commotions, were by four angels restrained from blowing upon the earth during the peaceful reign of Constantine and his successors. Under the patronage of those nominally Christian emperors, as history informs us, multitudes flocked into the church, the number of immoral and unworthy real immoral and unworthy Christians began so to increase that the examples of real piety and virtue became extremely rare. The virtuous few were opposed, excuse me, oppressed and overwhelmed with the superior number of the wicked and licentious. That is a, f- a quote from Mosheim, M-O-S-H-E-I-M. Thus the way was prepared for the visible appearing of the man of sin, the papacy. So soon, as the confederate hosts of the dragon are completely organized, the two witnesses take their position with the lamb. Verse 1 And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. While all the world wonders after the beast, chapter 13, verse 3, and the gross senses of the multitude are preoccupied with that object, Here is another presented more worthy of our contemplation. Often has the Lord Jesus appeared in vision to John while viewing the grand panorama passing before him at Patmos. Here he appeared as the captain of the Lord's host at the head of his army, not indeed in active military enterprise, but rather as leader in acts of solemn worship during a temporary recess from sanguinary warfare. He and his associates are on the Mount Zion. In Zion is his seat. The Lord hath founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. Isaiah fourteen thirty two. This select company maintain fellowship with Christ, being really and inseparably united to him as their head by the bond of the spirit on his part and faith on theirs. Christ's Father's name in their forehead indicates that they are the property and voluntary servants of God in Christ. Of this covenant relation, baptism is the visible sign. But while Simon Magus may bear the sign, none but those who are sealed unto the day of redemption are honored to stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion. To him their number is as accurately known as 144,000 is to us. And truly their fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The votaries of the beast may either glory in bearing his mark in their forehead or conceal the mark in their right hand, but the followers of the Lamb will confess him and his word before men at the hazard of all that is dear to men, even life itself. Mark eight thirty-eight, verses 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let the high praises of God be in their mouths. Psalm 149, verses 2 and 6. Unterrified by the roaming of the beast of prey, these followers of the Lamb lift their voices in unison, and whether on mountains, or in valleys, in dens, or in caves of the earth, their songs of praise ascend to the ears of the Lord of Savioth. The symphony is heightened by the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And if any person be so ignorant as to ground an argument on these words for the use of instruments in the worship of God, consistency will require him to take his position on the literal Mount Zion with a literal lamb. The song was new. It was not peculiar to the Mosaic economy. That, like it, was to wax old and vanish away. Hebrews 8, verse 13 No, it was indicted by the Holy Spirit to whom all hearts are known and all events foreknown. It was a song exactly framed to answer the twofold end of all inspired songs, to display the glories of the Godhead and to delineate the workings of grace and corruption with infallible precision, neither of which can be even successfully imitated by the best of uninspired men, much less by the licentious debauchees the slaves of Antichrist. Moreover, the order of worship, as here exemplified, merits special attention. The hundred and forty-four thousand perform this solemn service before the four beasts and the elders. The office bearers appointed by the Lamb, the Lord Christ, direct the whole solemnity. Among this joy among this joyful and holy company there is no hint of any part of public worship that is left to a vote of the congregation. This new song was unintelligible by the votaries of the beast, nor could they learn it while in that servile vassalage. They only who were redeemed from the earth as well as from among men were capable of learning it. As this song, related to the royal prerogatives of Jesus Christ and those who dwelt on the earth, had transferred their allegiance to Antichrist, They became thereby incapacitated for learning that song. Alas, how many complain of the cloudiness, the Jewish peculiarities, the unforgiving, revengeful spirit of the inspired Psalms. In their apprehension, they are contrary to the spirit of the gospel. That is, the Holy Spirit is contrary to himself. Oh, the blasphemy! Can such learn the new song? No, indeed, unless they repent and pray God, if perhaps the thought of their heart may be forgiven them. Verses 4 and 5 These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. These 144,000 worshipers are farther distinguished by their chastity. Betrothed to the Lord Christ from eternity, they are married to him in time. Hosea 2, 19 and 20, Romans 7, verse 4, Corinthians 11, verse 2. Indeed, the marriage covenant is employed throughout the Bible to shadow forth the union between Christ and the believer. Isaiah 54, verse 5, Jeremiah 31, verse 32, Hosea 2.2 Revelation 21.2 This analogy pervades the 45th Psalm and the Song of Solomon. Idolatry is therefore adultery, and superstition, will-worship, and human inventions as means of grace or the communion with God are fornication. Ezekiel 23.27 Accordingly, the kings of the earth are charged with this crime. Chapter 18, verse 3. Hence, it is plain that this company with the Lamb are such as do not receive or teach for doctrines the commandments of men, nor submit to a voluntary humility, and worshiping of angels. Colossians 2:18. For they are virgins. Psalm 44:14. They are distinguished for sound doctrine and the power of godliness. A man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, they reject. Titus 3.10 They cannot be indifferent to truth and error, and they may be known by their love for practical but especially doctrinal preaching. They frequent the ministry of those who give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. First Timothy 4.13 This ends the reading of Side 1. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on Side 2. These follow the Lamb. John 10, verse 4 and 27 Next, after self-denial, taking up the cross becomes the test of discipleship. Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25 Suffering is the most trying and most difficult part of a Christian's obedience. But mere suffering for one's religion is no evidence that his religion is scriptural, nor is punishment endured for religious persecution. But suffering for righteousness' sake, or for Christ's sake, is persecution, and this is what is implied in following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Not suffering, but the cause for which he suffers makes a Christian martyr. All these one hundred and forty-four thousand are martyrs in principle and intention. Besides, these were redeemed or bought from among men. Purchase supposes contract, a price fixed and paid. This ransom is both from debt and crime, from bondage, sin, and penalty. The Lamb is their surety. With his blood he redeemed them to God. Chapter 5, verse 9, and 1 Peter 1, verse 19. An atonement which does not reconcile, a redemption which does not save, must be an atonement and a redemption without a compact. Hence the covenant of grace and Christ's engagement as surety in that covenant Determine the extent of the atonement, for without compact no sinner could be saved. But such is the liberal doctrine of the boasted Roman Catholic Church, and such the sandy foundation of that general and doubtsome faith which the witnesses renounce. However numerous these followers of the Lamb may seem to be, they are no more than the first fruits. But the first fruits are part of the coming harvest, and an assured pledge of a larger ingathering their numbers were to be greatly augmented by the Reformation and still further in the millennial era. Godly sincerity is the last quality of these upright ones. They are Israelites without guile. Integrity, probity, candor, distinguish them from the flocks of the companions by whom they are surrounded. As they think in their heart, so do they express the truth. Psalm 15 verse 2 Chapter 12, verse 2, and John 1, 47. They know nothing of the pious frauds, any more than the indulgences and supererogations by which the man of sin sustains his interest. Their being without fault before the throne of God is the highest condemnation, excuse me, co- commendation possible. Yet it does not imply sinless perfection. It speaks their justification by the righteousness of Christ and their Christian sincerity, such as God testifies of Job. Job 1, chapter 8. Who would not prefer the society and employments of those who are with the Lamb on Mount Zion to dwelling in the tents of wickedness? Let our delights be with these excellent ones of the earth. Verses 6 and 7. The apostles, John and Paul, agree, as already noticed, in delineating a great defection from the purity and power of Christianity in the last days. Paul calls this event the apostasy, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, while John designates it the Antichrist, 1 John 2:22). 22. Both these inspired writers use the Greek article, as may be supposed to emphasize that wicked confederacy of church and state, a confederacy of greater extent and longer continuance than any other conspiracy against the Lord and His anointed. Against these, the saints of God, with Messiah at their head, contend for the allotted period of 1260 years, as we have seen in the three preceding chapters, on their part, the warfare is mostly defensive, and their weapons ordinarily spiritual. 2 Corinthians six, six and seven from the sixth verse to the close of this chapter are presented under customary and well-defined symbols three successive stages of successful reformation, showing how the two witnesses manage their scriptural and effective testimony against anti-Christian error and disorder in organized society. Three mystic angels successively appear divinely commissioned to execute their respective and appointed work. These angels have been correctly designated by judicious expositors, angels of revival and reform. To the intelligent Christian, it will be obvious that without reform there can be no revival. The popular idea of our time connected with the term revival is without foundation in the Holy Scriptures. It does not mean the regeneration of a sinner, nor the first work of the spirit in conviction. It presupposes the existence of the vital principle and the bringing of that living principle into visible activity. Romans 7 verse 9 And this is equally true, whether of an individual or moral person. Psalm 85 verse 6 and Ezekiel 37 Divine truth and external order are characteristics of a genuine revival. For nothing but sound doctrine can produce the power of godliness. The popular commotions and social disorders which accompany modern revivals render them highly suspicious. If they do not demonstrate them to be spurious, it is true indeed that passionate declamation, vociferous assertion of heresy intensified by theatrical and violent gesticulation, may... Commoves to a higher degree the active powers, the passions of the sinner, but such appliances can generate only a temporary faith. such converts having no root in themselves, wither away. Mark four verse six. God is not the author of confusion but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So these angels of reform declare by their ministry. The first of these angels is the recognized symbol of the gospel ministry, chapter 120, 2, 1, 8, and 12. Heaven is the visible church general. Flying indicates celerity of motion. This angel does not represent any individual as Luther, but the collective body of those who carry the joyful message of the everlasting gospel. This gospel is everlasting as distinguished from another gospel, which is not another, Galatians 1, Six, seven, eight, and 9. A spurious counterfeit and therefore ephemeral gospel invented and propagated by the man of sin from the flood which issued from the mouth of the dragon. Chapter 12, verse 15. The gospel preached by this angel is everlasting in its origin and duration. Titus 1, 2, John 4, 14, Galatians 6, 8. This angel's commission is as extensive as that of the apostles. Every nation, his loud voice is expressive of his zeal, energy, and authority. The subject matter of his brief sermon indicates very plainly that the object of his teaching is to counteract the heresies of the Romish apostasy. Fear God and give glory to him, not to the Virgin Mary, Canaanite saints and angels, images of wood and stone. Chapter 9, verse 20. All are solemnly warned to abstain from pollutions of idols, and their attention earnestly directed to their Creator, to Him who made heaven and earth, the seas and fountains of waters. This argument of the angel is very short, that He only is to be worshipped who created the universe, but it is sufficient to leave all men without excuse who do not glorify Him as God. Romans 1, 20, 21 And how much more aggravated is the guilt of professing Christians? But the angel employs another powerful argument to enforce his teaching. The hour of his judgment is come. The final judgment of the last day is often set before us in the Bible, and it is even so in this book. But the last judgment cannot be intended here, for subsequent judgments are to be inflicted according to the messages of the following angels. That Charlemagne should be mistaken for this flying angel betrays an almost incredible hallucination of the human mind. Footnote, such as the interpretation of Bishop Newton. Back to the text. No individual, as already noticed, much less a successful civil or military tyrant, can be intended by the Spirit as the herald of the everlasting gospel. In fact, this angel is identical with the two witnesses whose special work is to oppose the great apostasy, and this they do in a preeminent manner by proclaiming the everlasting gospel. For 500 years, those who are known in history by the name of the Waldenses kept the doctrine and order of the apostles in a state of separation from the Church of Rome. In the latter part of the twelfth century, their numbers and influence attracted the notice and brought upon them the wrath of the man of sin. In the following ages, multitudes of them were subjected to all the penalties of confiscation, banishment, and death. Like the seed of Abraham in Egypt, however, the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. They revived true religion in the kingdoms of southern Europe, And it is most probable that the good seeds sown by them reached even the island of Britain. John Huss and Jerome, who, by decree of the Council of Constance, were committed to the flames for heresy, and George Wishart in England, whose end was similar, together with such as cooperated with them and succeeded them in the same holy warfare, are to be viewed as answering to the mystic angel. These faithful and dauntless men denounced divine judgments against all who worship graven images, however enjoined by civil and ecclesiastical authority. For their fidelity to Christ and the souls of men, they were subjected to the heaviest censures of the heathenized church and the severest penalties of a tyrannical state, the beasts of the earth and the beasts of the sea, always in unholy alliance and acting in concert. The ministry of this angel is a testimony against papal corruption such as the worshiping images of the creator and creatures, but especially the Pope, the image of the Roman Empire. It is a mere fancy to suppose this angel symbolizes modern missions. The series of the prophecy forbids such an interpretation. Besides, the idolatry of Rome Christian is not less real or gross than the idolatry of pagans. It calls for a more earnest testimony, and God has never left himself without witnesses against affection and apostasy. This angel prepares the way for his successor, who prosecutes the same work with increasing clearness and confidence. Verse 8. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. There followed another angel. Some expositors, such as Faber, interpret this angel of Luther, some of Calvin, but no individual is sufficiently prominent in history to justify the application to him of so striking a symbol and so concise a prophecy. Such restriction of a symbol to an individual results from prelatic habits of thought. In the mind of a prelate, the idea of a gospel ministry includes that of a metropolitan This angel is, in fact, as usual, simply the emblem of the ministry, not excluding the social body of which they are the official guides. This second angel carries forward the reformation effected by his predecessor, reviving that cause when it began to languish under the violence of Antichrist. Quote, While the Roman pontiff, says Mosheim, slumbered in security at the head of the church and saw nothing throughout the vast extent of his domain but tranquility and submission, and while the worthy and pious professors of genuine Christianity almost despaired of seeing that reformation on which their most ardent desires and expectations were bent, an obscure and inconsiderable person arose on a sudden, in the year 1517, and laid the foundation of the long-expected change by opposing with undaunted resolution his single force to the torrent of papal ambition and depotism. That individual was the heroic Luther, whose praise is in all the churches till the present day. No individual is so famous in the history of that eventful period as Martin Luther, for recovering the doctrine of justification by the righteousness of Christ to the exclusion of all creature merit. This fundamental principle in the economy of man's salvation, he justly denominated the hinge of a standing or falling church. By the defense and propagation of this doctrine, especially the priestly office of Christ was vindicated against the dogmas of penance, indulgence, and supererogation inculcated by the man of sin, and by consequence one of the bulwarks of mystical Babylon effectually demolished. At the famous diet of worms, which, like the Council of Constance, combined the imperial power of Rome, civil and ecclesiastic, that indomitable servant of Christ gave a visible demonstration that the Spirit of the Father animated and spake in him, Matthew 10.20. Not less explicit was Luther on the fundamental doctrine of the divine crees, which, with other Arminian dogmas of creature merit, had been almost universally propagated and stamped with the pretended infallibility of, of, excuse me, infallible authority of Rome. By the translation and circulation of the holy scriptures among the people, the idolatries, impositions, and profligacy of the priesthood were extensively discovered and after years of deference to ecclesiastical authority, conditional proposals of submission to the Pope upon conviction of error in his theses, were conscientious belief, Luther in time arrived at the conclusion that the Church of Rome was irreclaimable, giving publicity to his deep convictions in a treatise, The Captivity of Babylon. In the 18th chapter of this book, he discovered that Babylon is doomed to destruction, He considered the Church of Rome as answering to the prophetic symbol and, of course, not to be reformed. It was an obvious inference he ought to obey Christ rather than the Pope. Come out of her, my people. This call was indeed a sufficient warrant to separate from the Church of Rome, and, acting on it, Protestant churches have ever since been organized. But the type or symbol, Babylon, was unwarrantably restricted in import as representing only the Church of Rome. And it is to be deplored that most Protestant expositors continue to limit the inspired symbol in the same way till the present time. The literal Babylon, a name common to the ancient city and empire of the river Euphrates, was in no sense a church, and it would be anomalous and incongruous to select either city or empire as the emblem of a church. There is, however, in the Apocalypse a combining or blending of symbols in order clearly and fully to represent a complex moral person. This has been already exemplified in chapter 13, verse 2, where the prominent features of Daniel's first three beasts, chapter 7, verses 4 to 6, are combined in John's first beast of the sea. Just so in this instance. The idolatrous and tyrannical Roman Empire, in alliance with an apostate church, constitutes mystical Babylon. History demonstrates the fact of their coalition. The great red dragon, the devil, operates through both during the allotted period of 1260 years against the witnesses of Christ. Sometimes, indeed, the nominal church is the more active and visible instrument, and at other times the state in opposing mediatory authority. And thus Babylon, or one of her streets, which is the equivalent of a horn of the beast, becomes prominent. The second angel confidently proclaims, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So said Isaiah of literal Babylon long before the event, chapter 21, verse 9, and so said Jeremiah, 51, verse 8, to whose predictions John obviously alludes. All these three prophets speak in present time of a future event simply because of the settled and unalterable purpose of God, acting not formally as a sovereign but as a judge. The multiplied and aggravated crimes of Babylon, literal or mystical Babylon, are the just grounds of her deserved and awful doom. From ancient times God has declared by his prophets the things that are not yet done, Isaiah 46.10. His counsel stands and he doeth all his pleasure that the mystical Babylon emblematically represents the complex systems of civil and ecclesiastical corruption and depotism organized in Christendom was in some degree understood by the reformers in Europe, but the work of this second angel was carried on successively by men of piety and learning who were eminently qualified for systematically arranging the doctrines of grace as deduced from the word of God. These pious labors we still have in the forms of bodies of divinity and confessions of faith, in which both the unscriptural and anti-scriptural dogmas and heresies of Rome are condemned and solidly confuted by the scriptures. There is a wonderful harmony of confessions framed by those who separated from the fellowship of the Romish Church, which harmony can be accounted for only by the fact that those who framed them drew their materials from the Bible. But it was by their public covenants especially that the reformers lifted a testimony against the heresies, immoralities, and tyrannies of the Church of Rome, and among all the churches of the Reformation, that of Scotland is justly entitled to that preeminence. In no nation or state in Christendom did the witnesses of Christ, the second angel, attain so nearly to a scriptural model of organized society in church and state as in that land whose mountains and valleys were flowered with martyrs for a covenant work of reformation. As Wingley the Swiss reformer excelled Luther, Calvin, and others in Europe in the application of the divine moral law as revealed in scriptures to civil society, so John Knox in Scotland was equally clear that royal personages are amenable to the body politic and both to the mediator. We are now under the ministry of this second angel the revival effected by the first angel had greatly declined before the second made his appearance, and all persons of intelligence and spiritual discernment in our day lament the visible decline in practical godliness arising from indifference to divine truth. Most professing Christians, including the descendants of the martyrs, are willingly ignorant of the attainments and sufferings of their illustrious predecessors. The work of Reformation to be accomplished by the second angel we suppose to have been completed about the middle of the seventeenth century. Since that period, his work appears from history to consist in testifying against the defection from the Reformation which had been reached. The great city is to fall because she made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication, She is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, neither of which was a church any more than Babylon. These were all heathen communities, never married to the Lord. Therefore Babylon is not here charged as an adulteress, but with fornication. The nations are her paramours. Her wine is intoxicating. It deranges the intellect and stupefies the conscience. Will any reasoning prevail with a drunken man, an active politician is proverbially unscrupulous and proof against the law of God. There is, however, wrath in this cup. Those who refuse to kiss—excuse me—those who refuse to kiss the Son must feel the weight of His iron rod. Psalm two nine and twelve, Psalm sixty five verse eight. The little book introduced at the tenth chapter is included in the first thirteen verses of the eleventh chapter which comprehends a concise history of the twelve hundred and sixty years as we have seen. At the fifteenth verse, the seventh and last trumpet is sounded, which introduces the millennium and gives a brief outline of events till the end of the world. Then the three following chapters give in detail the events prior to the millennium, a commentary, as it were, on the little book, but resuming a narrative of the sealed book's contents, which had been suspended at the end of the ninth chapter. There, as we have seen, the first and second woe trumpets left the population of the Roman church and empire still in rebellion. They repented not. Hence, it is apparent that the work of these symbolic angels consists in opposing the anti-Christian systems of organized society during the period of the fifth and sixth trumpets. This they do partly by declaring the truth as it is in Jesus and partly by denouncing divine judgments on the impenitent The first angel, by proclaiming the everlasting gospel, called upon men to fear God and give glory to him, and not to idols, threatening coming judgment. The great majority of those addressed, however, disregarding alike his loving instructions and faithful warnings, must hear from the second angel that the judgment threatened by his predecessor is now imminent. Babylon has fallen, notwithstanding the faithful and earnest contendings of the Waldenses Bohemians and others on the continent of Europe, seconded by the Lollards in England, so far were the votaries of Antichrist from repenting of their idolatry and profligacy that they became more and more exasperated against those witnesses who tormented them and attempted to silence their testimony by committing their leaders to the flames. Hence the second angel's ministry consists more in denouncing judgment than in offering mercy to the penitent. In the history of the struggles in Europe and the British Isles between Christ's witnesses and the Roman Antichrist in the 16th and 17th centuries demonstrates the awful fact that they, with great and wonderful unanimity, judged the Church of Rome at least utterly irreclaimable. Of this united judgment, the confessions of those Reformers are at this day a standing evidence. But chief among the churches and nations of Christendom stands Scotland, as well before as after her appearance by her famous commissioners in the Westminster Assembly of Divines, in her full and free assembly, and by her national representatives sustained by all their pious constituency, she uttered those memorable words, We abhor and detest chiefly all kinds of papistry in general, and particularly heads, In particular, heads, even as they were damned, condemned, and confuted by the word of God and Kirk of Scotland. Perhaps this is the only instance hitherto within the 1260 years where a whole church and nation, under the awful sanction of a solemn oath, had pronounced a judicial sentence of condemnation upon the church of Rome. Thus, with confidence, did those noble witnesses pronounce the anticipated doom of the mystic Babylon. But alas! May we not adopt and apply now, and, and this time it was 1870, the language of the weeping prophet? How was she become a widow? She that was great among the nations and princes among the provinces, as declension among those who had protested against the corruptions of Antichrist under the ministry of the first angel of reform, Together with the continued impenitence of the multitude who still wondered after the beast called for the appearance of the second angel of revival, so the moral condition of the world called for the work of his successor. In the meantime, living as we are now, within the period allotted in prophecy and in history to the ministry of the second angel of revival and reform, it is but too evident that there is a great and increasing decline among the best reformed churches, Many of the Protestant ministry, especially of the Prolatic order, are posting back to Rome and the growing ritualism with its gaudy and splendid attire of a harlot, which characterizes others plainly indicates their tendency in the same direction. And even those other denominations which are not yet prepared to adopt that blasphemous hierarchy are visibly departing from the soundness of doctrine and purity of gospel worship, which constituted the chief glory of the Second Reformation. These are the baleful baleful effects of the dragon's influence on the earth. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 15. Besides, nearly all ecclesiastical bodies are yet in cordial alliance with the beast of the sea, and this alliance is the Antichrist. The Pope is now nearly divested of his former civil pr- supremacy and in this respect becomes less the express image of the imperial beast of the sea, chapter 13, 14. Yet the leaven of the Romish religion pervades all the Christian communities, so far as allegiance to the beast or his horns is either enjoined or tolerated. This usurpation of royal prerogatives of Christ over the churches and nations in the eastern hemisphere by the kings of the earth and a similar usurpation in the Western Hemisphere, whether by individual despots or by the body politic, is the great crime which fills the measure of the cup of wrath to be poured out on the seven of the seven vials. While such is the moral condition of society in all lands favored with the revelation of the will of God, visited with judgments continuing in penitent and guilty augment in guilt augmenting, what is to be expected but heavier judgments to follow? This ends tape number 8 of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A, Avenue, Edmond, Alberta, Canada, T6L 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse, by David Steele, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our web at at www.swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.